What's happening, weirdos? Uh, back in the day, we would call an episode like this a Romcast, because this is Mirabai Bush, who is a friend of uh, Ramdas. Obviously, Ramdas has uh, left the body, as we say, but she was with Ramdas in India with Maharaji, Ramdas's guru, and has incredible stories and insight and wisdom of her own, obviously, to share. But it's always exciting to talk to somebody from that lineage, somebody that I know from the Ramdas retreats, and always enjoy her talks and also just talking with her casually, just a open hearted, wise, wonderful human being. That I am very excited for you guys to uh, meet. Um, also, unless you already love her, in which case, welcome back. She wrote um, a incredible book with Ram Dass called "Walking Each Other Home." It is essential reading if you or anyone you uh, know um, plans to die. <laughs> it's sort of dark, but it's like that thing none of us are talking about. She and Ram Dass just did a deep dive into death. Um, and embracing it and learning from it and understanding it, how to be with someone who's dying, how to pass yourself. It's just unbelievably important because learning how to die is, is all, all, obviously, you, maybe you've heard this, is learning how to live. So I highly recommend that. Um, it's just a beautiful book. Um, this chat is incredible. It's brought to us by our friends at uh, Charlotte's Web. Get yourself some calm gummies. We could all use some calm these days. I know I'm, I'm living by them. Go to charlottesweb.com slash weird and use promo code KEEPITCRISPY19 for 10% off. It's also brought to us by our friends at Onnit, makers of Alpha Brain, the only supplement that I've, well, I guess CBD is a supplement too, but the only like vitamin type supplement, <laughs> let's say, that I've taken every single day for the past five six years now. It's been an incredible life changer for me. Alpha Brain is a nootropic, which means it's like a, a vitamin for your brain. It's food for your brain. It's fuel for your brain. It's not a stimulant like coffee. It doesn't get you up and perky. In fact, it helps you uh, think. In fact, you can take it before bed is what I was going to say. It helps you think. It helps you focus. It helps you concentrate. Anything that I do that requires my brain, which is a lot of the things that I do, I always take two or three Alpha Brain 15, 20 minutes beforehand, and you can absolutely 100% feel the availability of the full faculty of your brain, whether it's a podcast, uh, doing a stand-up set, writing a script, or as I always say, just hanging out with Val, and I want my brain there. I want to be an active listener. I want to remember the things she's telling me, and I want to remember the things that I wanted to tell her. I wish I had Alpha Brain when I was in college. It would have made it a lot easier, but I'm still doing a lot of creative stuff and a lot of brain stuff, and it is absolutely a secret weapon that I am so grateful for. The, the whole staff on Crashing knew about Alpha Brain, and I would give it to them, and I turned a lot of people there onto it, uh, writers and creatives that now love it and swear by it. So I want you to try it. That's the best thing you can do. And as I always say, this being the only uh, thing I'm really able to do, I really appreciate your support at this time. We don't have a Patreon and we don't have a donation page, but if you want to show some love to this podcast, just go to onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird, and you will get 10% off everything on that landing page, including Alpha Brain, and you will show your support for this always free podcast. Uh, all right, guys. Enjoy Mirabai Bush. Hope you're enjoying the cartoons. I don't know if you've seen, we've been animating some clips from the show 
And uh, my friend Katie Fischel, who's incredible, her Instagram is sex underscore is underscore weird. Sex is weird. Um, she's been animating these clips from the show. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, that might be a fun reason to get on there. I don't really post much, but now we're definitely going to post one of those every week. Uh, so check that out. And in the meantime, enjoy the incredible Mirror by Bush. I've, it's, it was a while ago when we chatted. I'm excited to listen to this one again as well. All right. And see you on Friday for We Made It Weird with Val. All right. Get into it. I told you I'm, I told you I'm a fan of yours. But, but, and I watch everything on TV. But I've been in my, since I've been home, isolated, my um, daily exercise is going for long country walks. And um, so I often uh, take you on my phone. And so when I listen to you, I'm in these beautiful places and I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing the right thing, you know, walking. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're inhabiting a really positive place in my psyche. Oh, that's really special. You mean you listen to the podcast or you listen? To, oh, that's wonderful. Did you listen to Jack? I did listen to Jack today, actually. Oh, um, wasn't, wasn't he great? I was like, that man's just a gift. He's amazing. Yeah. He, um, he reminded me, I think you know what a compliment this is. I think I said to it him on air, I, I was like, you remind me of Ramdas. Like, he, he just kept out-loving me. The part that sticks out <laughs> of that podcast is, I know you were raised Catholic. Yes. Um, and if it's okay, we're recording. We'll just, we'll just get into it. Um, I'm always trying to, like, when I talk to spiritual people, I'll, I'll bring up sex and sexuality and shame, usually. Uh-huh. And I did that with Jack, and he just had... I'm sorry? I said, do you want to get into it right away? (laughs) (laughs) We can just jump right into it. Who cares? But Jack was... I might have missed that. I didn't hear, like, the last 10 or 15 minutes. It might have been in the last 10 minutes, but I I was talking about how everything is a practice. Mm -hmm. Um, People say they don't want to practice, and I was like, neurologically speaking, whatever you do is a practice. Now, this might be a remnant of my Christian shame. I was sort of saying, if you look at pornography every day, that's a practice. I wasn't really trying to pass judgment. I'm just saying we have the brain scans to show that you can sort of become what's known as a novelty addict. It it sort of stops becoming about sexuality and it becomes about just like stimulation. So I was going to like get into that and maybe, you know, be my special boy and impress Jack and have him, his jaw drop and have him be like, I always knew you were a special boy and I uh, always knew Ram Dass loved you the most and now I love you the most or something like that. Like I'm trying But instead he just stopped me and he just goes, life is hard and it's lonely and people are doing what they need to do. Like, like he was just saying, like, they're not just people looking at pornography. They're, they're souls. They're humans. They're, it's us as Ram Dass would say, there's no one in the other boat. So like, he sort of caught me in a very subtle way. Even if I was just trying to like mention neurology, Mm-hmm. Out, he outloved me, and I was like, "That's exactly what Ramdas would do." That is great, <laughs> isn't that lovely? Yeah, it's really good. It's a really good thought. And I feel like that's that's every time we've spoke. I know there's so much going on, and the, and there's part of me and probably part of you that's like, "Oh, should we even be doing this right now?" It feels like a strange time to have a conversation about anything other than exactly what's going on today. Um, but I love your teachings and when you talk about mindfulness and when you talk about 
loving your neighbor and knowing who your neighbor is and knowing who we all are and all of this, it seems like, and and I'm going to give this to you, one of the things I like about spirituality is it's talking about what's going on no matter what's going on. Yeah. And you were there in the 60s, you know protests, you know unrest, and you've been through all of this. And I wanted you to speak to love. I I emailed you about the Just Like Me practice. We don't have to do that, but I'd love for you to speak to the idea of some of the things that you like to teach and some of the things you've been sharing now that might be useful. I'd love to lead it, but maybe a little later after, you know, people to hear me. Settle in. As a human (laughs) first. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, So are you asking me what, what I'm thinking about what's going on now in light of having been through so much yeah, we don't even have to launch into teacher mode. We can we can strip the question down and just say, how are you today? How are you right now? Good. I mean, what a question these days, huh? I mean, <laughs> the last couple of months, it's been, you know, we, we ask it so easily. And then it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. You know, it not the answer includes so much. But, um, yeah, I... I was having a really hard time with this, partly because, yeah, I have been through years of this. And I was very involved in, uh, I was in graduate school in the late 60s. So I was involved in anti-war work and um, civil rights and um, very involved in, in civil rights. And after Martin Luther King was killed, um, the state of New York uh, legislated that the university um, should represent the demographics of the state. And at that point, it's hard to appreciate now how bad it was. But there were like three black students on campus. This is the huge state university campus. And so they ruled that the following September had to reflect the state. So the freshman class was um, a re- had really a lot of students of color and mostly African-Americans because they recruited them locally in Buffalo. And um, so I uh, got involved in creating a program because they were really, uh, they recruited locally. They were unequipped. Most of them never thought about going to college and there they were on campus. And um, there were no black faculty except uh, Archie Shep, who's a great musician, jazz musician. Um, he and I shared an office and we developed this, you know, way to like um, help people learn in a way that like they could culturally relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then associated with that were all kinds of things. You know, I was part of the Black Panthers feeding the children program and so many things. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, um, the, I want the Mirabai Bush movie. I really do. I, I your your lives, when it comes to, we'll get to it. But like meeting Maharaji is just like yeah. one part of your life. Like that alone is is so. Yeah, although all this led to it, and that's why, in a way, it was. It's been so real over the last week because um, I was so I was involved in all these things. We all were, and we were protesting on the streets and getting tear gas, going to D.C. That I remember at one point the FBI. Um, uh, requested, demanded um, from the school my um, my grades for my classes. It's like what? what? 
you know, they didn't know what they were doing. Ironically, it was FBI. I had an F, I had a B, and an incomplete. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was it was pretty awful, and and you can get a glimpse of it with what's going on. And uh, mm. so I decided I wanted to leave, uh, and you know, see if there was a saner way in the world to live a more compassionate way, um, more peaceful way. Because that was frightening. Like all joking aside, that was the feeling that the federal government was suspicious of you. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And then now we've had like chapter after chapter of the federal government doing all kinds of things, you know, but then we're just like, there's the sixties were coming out of the fifties. Like no one had really challenged the government before. Mm. So it was terrifying. And the police took over the campus. So they couldn't teach. So um, I left with my then partner and we traveled um, overland through Europe and the Middle East and then into Asia, like um, just visiting in different places. And it was really incredible. It's totally peaceful then. You could go through, you know, uh, Iran, uh, start Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, hmm. India. Peaceful everywhere. And everybody loved Americans. They, like, were so happy we were there. They took us into their homes and their temples and their mosques. And it wow. was beautiful. And, uh, and then I got to India. And then uh, I thought I'd stay for two weeks. I met Maharaji and Ram Dass and all the others, and uh, I stayed for two years. It was 1970. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting to me how those stories often take root in people that don't have a lot of attachments. I think that's why it's so wonderful that you were young and sort of, I don't want to say listless, but you didn't have a family. You didn't have a job in the, in the strict sense. I mean, I know you had a job, but like you didn't have uh, I did it well. I was teaching. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have so much... Like, that's why so many, even modern day superheroes, they lose everybody that knows them. And, and then they, and then their real power begins. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so true. you, you were able to go, and I, I always have a part of me that envies, especially now that I have a baby mm-hmm. and a life in that way. It's so condescending that's, to say that that's a life, like people that don't have that, it's no, not a life. But I'm just saying that type of life. I, if I went to India and just loved it. I couldn't be like, and I'm going to stay for two years, but it's what a mitzvah, what a great thing that you were able to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm amazed at it. When I think about it, Yeah. sometimes when I tell the story, then young people especially said, how much did it cost you? You know, like, <laughs> I don't know, like $200 or something. I mean, it would, that was another part of it. Another part of the freedom is mm. that you could do it. You know, it was the longest bus trip in the world, but I think it cost yeah. like fifty dollars or something. And wow. then in India, we lived for, you know, two years and nothing, really. Wow. So, um, but yeah, it, there was a freedom, and there were a lot of people then exercising that freedom because we were also we didn't know what to do. Yeah, I think there's a difference now. I mean. We know there are a lot of things to do about um, racial injustice now. Um, and, you know, we just need the, the um, 
commitment, the will, you know, the, the compassion to, to do it. But yeah, um, yeah. then we didn't really know what to do. Yeah, it, that's an interesting perspective because you mentioned Dr. King's assassination and I was, it was very helpful for me when I was reading about that there were riots after Dr. King was assassinated. And then after six days of, of protests, I shouldn't say riots, I guess it was yeah. uh, aggressive protesting. I don't know what to say. But um, after six days, they passed a certain bill. Forgive me for forgetting. But I mean, it did lead to change. Nowadays, there's a little bit of hope in what you're saying. The level of awareness when we're seeing police brutality, for example, and I, and I don't just mean George Floyd, I mean what's happening now. Hundreds of videos are flooding the internet, so like the voice, even though it's so dark, there's this glimmer of hope that you can go, it's, you can have a very, 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 very loud voice. And that is the light of awareness, like we're bringing awareness mm-hmm. to something, and that's always been the idea. So it sounds like back then it was a little bit harder to maybe, you know, just spread the word so people are, are, are maybe went inside. In two years in India, I never made one phone call. <laughs> Where were your folks? You had to stand in line for, in three lines in order to um, uh, reserve a time for a phone call. And then wow. four days later. Um, uh, I had grown up in New York and New Jersey. I had um, home, and I can't believe, you know, that I didn't talk to my mother in two years. I mean, Mm. once I became a mother, I was like, oh, my God, I can't, you know. But it was pretty impossible. And we used to write these aerograms, you know, on very thin paper, and then with, like, these fine pen, fine-tipped pens they had in India with Mm. ink, you know. Mm. And, you know. That was that was the only communication home. So I'm um, just comparing that to now. Yeah. yeah. Were they were they freaking out? I mean, clearly you were a flower child, if I'm using the term correctly. Um, and you did what so many did and went to the East to to was it deliberately to find a spiritual path or was it just because your heart was broken and you didn't know what else to do? It was more that. Um I wasn't I didn't think I was looking for anything spiritual, but I was looking for meaning. Mm. I was looking for, you know, a way of being and living that felt aligned with my inner values. I didn't call it spiritual. And I I didn't set off to find a teacher or even a practice. But um, the first day I was, second day I was in Delhi, I met Sharon Salzberg on the street and um, mm-hmm. she, we had been at the same school, but she, um, but we didn't know each other there. And um, I'm assuming you stopped her because it was another Westerner. Is yeah, that... exactly. And there were, there were very few. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we saw each other and said, you know, start talking. And then she told me about this course that uh, a Burmese Buddhist teacher, Goenka, was going to teach for the first time for Westerners. And um, there hadn't been many Westerners in India until this wave. Mm. Uh, The Raj was there. And then I think the Indians were very happy not to have any Westerners around. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we showed up. 
(laughs) (laughs) And the teacher that Sharon was talking about was? Goenka. Goenka. I I haven't heard that name. Mm -hmm. He's died now. But he's a Burmese um, Buddhist teacher who was teaching in India. And um, he had been a businessman most of his career. And then some things happened in his life and he went to a monastery and he learned and he became a really great teacher. Mm. And um, he'd been teaching for a a while when um, he, I forget exactly what led him to make the decision, but he decided as as some Westerners were showing up in Bodh Gaya that he would um, teach a course for Westerners. And the word, I mean, the thing was, there was no internet, but there was this, amazing underground um uh i I, I don't know what to call it but information spread and Mm -hmm. uh, you see Mm -hmm. something on the street you didn't know you know this started in the hippie period you know and then you'd connect with them and you'd share information i feel like the only way we have to relate to that is uh signs for yard sales like that's the only remaining maybe you're out for a walk and you see a sign for a yard sale and you go to it but like the 60s and 70s, it seemed like you'd see Sharon on the street and you'd be like, what's happening? Like, what's going on? What should we be getting into? It's like a good day in Manhattan. You know, Manhattan can have that feel where you're yes, just Yes, yes, And they take you to an art exhibit or they take you to a show. But so much of modern life is like RSVPing with a Groupon and it's, it's all calculated. It's sort of lost some of that. I think that's why I romanticize the 60s so much as I'm like, wow, like you couldn't just text somebody. You had to run into Sharon. I can't even imagine young Sharon on the streets of India. And she tells you there's this uh, Buddhist, which at the time, I mean, you couldn't have even had that much of a context for Buddhist. I I did not. (laughs) Now you say Buddhist. My mom kind of knows what you mean. Oh, life is suffering or something. Or the the statues inside the Chinese restaurant. But you were really... In the in the um, electric flow, like life was kinetic. Yeah, and you yeah, went. And what do you, do you remember that lighting the spark that sort of made you go? I'm going to stay in this. Yeah, I mean, we he taught he taught meditation in these ten day courses, and we sat in silence with instruction, but it was in silence for from five in the morning till nine or 10 at night every day for 10 days. You sat in silence from five to nine. Uh Uh-huh. That's quite a crash course. Yeah. (laughs) And you didn't give up. I mean, Mirabai, slow the story down. You, you, I don't know if I could do that now. I, uh, that, that's incredible. Well, part of it was the environment. I mean, we were in this, it's called the Bihar. It was like a monastery. And we were all, and there were about, I can't remember, I think there were like 75 of us there. And mm. a lot of people who came back and became teachers, Joseph Goldstein and Wes Nisker and Ram Das was there and Krishna Das and uh, Ramesh, and a lot of people, those we remained mm. good friends. We brought it all back here. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there, it was, um, you know, that kind of group. Um, what is that called when you just peer pressure, although we didn't, we weren't intending to pressure each other, but we were all there in that room. And you didn't want to be the one that walked out. Up and start screaming. <laughs> 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 you feel right. Yeah. 
Um, I completely understand. This is why I can't do yoga with like a, a class online or something. I need to go. My ego, I mean that in the, in the, in the helpful sense needs to go. I can't quit. Like, especially if Val's with me, it's not that I'm competitive with Val. I'm like, it motivates me to stay. I'm like, yeah. we're going to stay. Yeah. We're going to do this. But like during the breaks, I mean, please, I, I couldn't be more interested. There's young KD, Krishnadas and Ramdas and Sharon during the breaks, are you commiserating about how hard it is? I mean, you guys aren't who you are now. No breaks for 10 days. No breaks! <laughs> no break to talk! Also, we were not allowed to read or write or talk to each other. Yeah. Wow. So we just meditated. <laughs> we got into it, needless to say. Like, it broke you. It, it You basically, yes. it was yeah. almost like a... I, I don't want to say, I say this with respect, like a, almost like a military training program, like a boot camp. It's like, we're going to break you and you're going to be a meditator at the end of this. Yeah, but it was done with so much love that um, it didn't feel that way. Of course, you could leave at any time. You know? Right. But, um, but you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody did, but... Um, what but, was... But there's more. So when the 10 days were over... We all said, we're not ready to go. We want to do this again. So we took a couple of days off and talked like mad and did another one. We did four in a row. You did 40 days? Yes. That, didn't Buddha do 40 days in the woods and Jesus did no, 40 days in the desert? Quarantine comes from 40. No kidding. Or, you know, yes, because Jesus was 40 days in the, um, in the desert. Um, and Moses was 40 days on the mountain before he brought the Ten Commandments back. And 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness. Yeah. yeah. So the, the word, obviously these numbers aren't necessarily literal, but they're things that people would recognize and go yeah. a or long time. <laughs> yeah. So 40 was the day in the earlier plagues also. There's a number of days they would isolate people. So we're part of a noble tradition. Wow. You went through 40 days. That is incredible. And in between, so speaking of Christ in the desert, you know, when I've uh, gone, tried to up my meditation practice, I'm visited by the same devils. I don't mean this literally, but they're the ones that are like, if you were really powerful, uh, do something actually helpful. Or wouldn't it be better to be out there talking to people? Or uh, if you're so great, uh, prove it, basically. All, this, all these ego things. So all of that stuff had to be coming up for you. Like, I'm wasting my time, or I should be back home, or I'm, I'm in a cult, or I'm crazy, or... Um, I can hear Sharon breathing out of her nose. I wish she would breathe out of her mouth. Whatever it would be that's annoying you. <laughs> Was she next to you? No, I said, were you sitting next to me? Because <laughs> that's what it was, right? I mean, yeah. these are the temptations. Yeah, and we were young, you know, and um, we wanted to be with each other. But, mm. um, yeah, but in between... That's when, uh, so this is when I met Ramdas. And in between the um, courses, he would, I didn't know, I, hadn't, I didn't know anything about him before. But some of the people there, Danny Goldman and um, 
uh, and Christian Dawson. So they had been with him in this country. Um, and uh, so in between, he would usually be like sitting with a group of people and talking. And he had, at this point, he'd been in India before. He had come back. He'd written Be Here Now. And then he had gone back to India the second time. And Be Here Now came out while we were in this monastery. We got the first copy. It was in a box in the beginning. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I've seen so that box. He, um, uh, you know, he, he was just full of talking about these things at the time. And uh, it was, of course, extremely helpful because we were, even though we did all these days, we were still, you know, we were Westerners steeped in Western psych- psychological and, you know, intellectual ways of thinking. And he was so helpful. But we also wanted to get to know each other, you know, because we were, as I said, we were young. Everybody was pretty beautiful. We were like mm-hmm. looking. There was nothing. You couldn't do anything, but you could look around. And so <laughs> we really wanted to see who was there. So in between, we would try to like tell each other, you know, where we'd come from. So Ramdas. Ramdas would call us. He called us the used to bees because we would say, you know, what do you used to be? You know? Oh my God. And he'd say, you should be here now. <laughs> we were just hearing this for the first time, you know. So uh, <laughs> it was great. He's he's still, even at that early stage of his teaching, although he's pretty established, he's I mean, so much suffering during my quarantine. I have to do the same thing. What did I used to be? Oh, I used to be a fancy comedian. Be here now. I don't say be here now. I like to say something else I heard RD say, which is just this moment, which for some reason it feels more gentle. Be here now feels like a domineering. Yeah, it does. I I, I love be here now, but I'm saying just this moment. Yeah, that's great. Or wilting. It's just sort of like, oh, I give up. It's just this moment, just this moment. Because I've said this a million, but it's the most helpful thing that I can share. So I'll say it over and over on this podcast is like if I start telling a story of what today looks like or what this morning looks like and then go, well, what will the afternoon look like? And it's too similar. (laughs) It's too much like the morning. And then the evening is too much like the afternoon. And Tuesday is too much like Monday. That is me creating my own suffering. But if I go just this moment, it's yeah. all here. It's all now. And then you, even when I think back on how long we've been quarantined, I can't really remember it as a story because there's been so much melting into it that it's just become one long moment, yeah. which I have to think is what you were experiencing in those 10-day chunks. You lose what you used to be and you just become the, the still point of the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So much. I mean, because we were just watching our minds the whole time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What was the what was the practice? What type of meditation the practice was it? Practices um it was vipassana of which is a form of buddhist meditation. Mindfulness has been distilled out of it, you know, but basically it was well, it was very formulaic. For 3 days, 3 days you just watched your breath. So yeah. you brought your your attention to your breath. <laughs> you just watched your breath for 3 days. And wow. um, and then you learn to come back over and over, and you learn that when your mind wandered off, which it always did, you um, bring it back. 
Well, that's what Sharon said. And I know you know that Sharon says that she goes, that's meditation. Meditation is coming back. Yes. And and not being mad at yourself. Yes. That, that is such a more appealing way of framing meditation. I did it this morning where I was like, okay, I'm meditating. And I was like, no, that's not sexy enough for me. It's not colorful enough. I'm forgiving myself is so much more appealing. Like no matter what I think, something terrible, some weird fantasy, some perversion, whatever it is. And you just go, it's okay. It's okay. That I want to do for 20 minutes. It's hard. It's hard to sit, but it's easy to, to open up. You know, I've been wanting to ask you this because I know your uh, Christian background. Yeah. And um, as you know, I grew up a Catholic girl. It's somewhat different, but you know. yeah. Um, that when we started um, uh, encouraging and supporting uh, Christian Buddhist dialogue, um, mm-hmm. Gethsemane was one um, where Thomas Merton had been. And I was going to say you guys had Merton who was yeah. pioneering that. I mean, now it seems so normal for oh, Thich Nhat Hanh to put out uh, Buddha and, and Jesus. But exactly. back then you guys were kind of doing that. For for a, an institution, the Catholic Church, that seems so uh, into itself, believing its own hype, it's strange that that's the tradition that had the guy that was like, I've been talking to these Buddhists, you know what I mean? Like, what an, what an iconoclast, literally. Yeah. And, well, then I would say that when, when Sharon and Joseph um, and others of us came back to this country and we realized there was no place to meditate, I mean, we'd been doing a lot of meditating. <laughs> yes, clearly. Came back, there was no place to sit quietly. I mean, you could sit in your bedroom, maybe, but you know, there were no public places. And so um, we started Insight Meditation, where Sharon uh, continues to teach. And um, it was in central Massachusetts, and it was right near um, a Catholic monastery uh, seminary, I guess. Uh, called uh, Spencer Abbey. Um, and um, the monks at Spencer Abbey, um, they were living by the Benedictine rule. They did a lot of chanting, but they were, they met the folks from Barry and uh, started going over there and learned meditation, the same practices. Hmm. And they loved it. And they felt that it really combined well with um, what they were doing. Um, and then after some time, quite some time when a number of them had really gotten into it, um, they decided they wanted to create a practice that would work for their um, uh, Catholic constituency in a way that Buddhist practice worked for them because they were real contemplatives and they got it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And so that's when they started centering prayer and uh, Father Thomas Keating and others. And, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people now do centering prayer. So, yeah. Mm. I just, Thomas Keating is a name that keeps coming to me. I've just started getting into him. Isn't that weird? Isn't it strange that life can be long enough that like I'm 41 and I'm just finding out? I've been so close. But I've just, I just learned the welcoming prayer, which is something that he popularized. He's so great. And you you love Richard Rohr, right? And I love Richard Rohr. So how did I miss it? I mean, it was right there. (laughs) There's so much. (laughs) Yeah, there there is so much. But here's what I wanted to ask you. So when we were first started all this, um, uh, you know, interconnection, exploring, um, 
there's one book called Benedict's Dharma. But, um, mm, mm. and oh, then when we started teaching these practices to, uh, in secular settings, um, of course, in America, most people in secular settings are Christian. So, uh, particularly when we worked with the army and um, uh, some others, I forget where it first came up, but um, often people would say, um, and this ca- and it came up in the Buddhist Christian dialogues too, uh, uh, that I silence. Um, we don't like silence because it's an invitation to the devil. Mm. I had grown up always hearing that you know idleness is the devil's workshop. You know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. idle hands. But mm-hmm. um, but I'd never heard it in terms of silence before. But And so I thought about that. And when I worked with the chaplains in the army, they really had a a very difficult time with the idea of silence. And because they said that it it creates an opening for the devil to enter. Hmm. And so I thought about it. And now I think that where did that come from? You know, I think it's because, as you were saying, when you're sitting, every wild idea every negative emotion, all anything that you could possibly think arises. You know, you learn to not act on these things, but your better angels tell you not to. But, um, but everything arises, and you can see some really dark places in yourself. That's right. That's right. And I think that was, um, that's what it is. I mean, I think that's where that idea of the devil entering comes. What do you think about that? I, I think that's right on. I think you completely understand it. Richard Richard Rohr uh, talks about that. He's like, if I had told my, um, I don't know the term sometimes, but his head, I don't know, friar at his seminary, that he's going to love his thoughts, um, he would have been laughed out of the school. He, he said that came much later. So this is what we get, what we call willpower Christianity, sort of like whistling in the dark. And that is definitely the Christianity that I was raised in, which is like, you better think about what is just and right and holy and good, because if you're left to yourself, original sin, and you're a piece of shit, and like, you're just going to go, you're going to drag yourself straight to hell. It, It speaks to the distrust of your humanity, which is so strange to me that the whole point of Christ was to show that humanity and divinity are overlaying on each other. And even though they don't, you know, make logical sense, he was there to be an example to go like, so with me, so with you, like, let's, this, this isn't a flaw in the system to be human and to, and to compassionately observe your ugliness or your, whatever the hot button things are, it's usually lust and violence or hate. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm rewatching the Sopranos. It's funny. Cause I, I had a difficult conversation with my mom and I was like, that's it. I'm rewatching the Sopranos because he does all that work with his mom and the show. <laughs> right. And whenever his therapist suggests that he's mad at his mom, he is literally violent to her. And I was like, that's how we are to ourselves. That's how we treat ourselves. If you have an ugly thought, I'm so proud of Val and I and, and the satsang, which is a fancy word for this community of Ramdas people, how we can share our ugliness. What is gained by pretending it's not there? We're just brushing the front of our teeth. 
we're never getting the back of our teeth. It's just as long as you look good when you're smiling, it's you're fine. And that was and that and that's not just Christians. That's just humans. That's just humanity. Yeah. But to get into a place, and this is what Ramdas did for me, and this is what meditation's done for me, where you can see a terrible. What is the most terrible thing? See it, name it, and identify as the witness that's watching it. And go, that that's not. It doesn't have to possess me. Yeah. That's what Richard Rohr says. Possession is the demon. Possession is people that have been possessed by their minds. That's that the the devil is a metaphor for your brain, for you believing your toxic, ugly, you know, unworthiness, your, your dirtiness, your nastiness, and you become reclusive. He sort of points to how many people that, that do terrible things are described as like rec- recluses that couldn't connect with other people because they hate themselves, you know? So that, that is a big issue. So I can see how loving yourself in a meditation practice and, and getting better at here's a nasty thought. I'm going to let it float down the river. It doesn't have to define me. Yeah. And even, I think it's Eckhart Tolle that says you acknowledge them like little sort of bratty children, but you don't, <laughs> you don't say, get out of here. You <laughs> acknowledge them. And, and what a, what a inversion of what I was taught. You can love it and say, thank you. That's what the welcoming prayer is. That's Thomas Keating's thing. He's like, I welcome everything, every feeling, every thought, every situation, because I know it's for my healing. I mean, yeah. or you live in a world where everything's a flaw. I'm not supposed to be thinking this way. I'm not supposed to be feeling this way. I shouldn't have thought that. I'm wrong. I'm, and, and then all you're doing, this is what was so revelatory for me when I heard Ram Dass talking about aversion. It's like attractions and aversions either way. If you're pushing it away or pulling it in, you're still stuck in the, in the mess of the game. And the only play is to let it be. I didn't even know what that meant. Let it be. I didn't know what it meant. What a profound thing. Let it be. And then as Jack said, he's like, to let something go first, you have to let it be. You let it be and then you can let it go. But some people just try to jump to let it go and now you're pushing the boulder away and it's just getting heavier and heavier because you're pushing it uphill. How about just let it go just and let it be? It, it's, it's so simple. But that was not baked into the, the Christianity that I had. That's why when Richard Rohr, I know I've been talking a lot, forgive me, but when he said willpower Christianity, I was like, that's what I was doing. Just don't think of a, of a purple elephant. You know what I mean? Just don't think you're talking about being in India and you're meditating, but you're young and beautiful. I was as young and beautiful as I was going to be in youth group. Try not to think about sex while you're in, you know, a weekend retreat with all these, you know, teenage boys and girls. I mean, but that's what we were doing. It was was like those people that have rubber bands on their wrists that are trying not to smoke. And every time they want a cigarette, they snap themselves that's what we were doing. That, that, that was God to me, was the rubber band on my wrist. <laughs> that, that leads to the second part of this practice, the remaining seven days, was you took that energy that you built up from watching those thoughts come and mm. see them, let them go. You know, there's that Zen saying, and you can invite them in, just don't ask them to stay for tea. <laughs> mm. I like that. Um, but um, anyhow, the second part was 
is to take um, take that energy that you've refined that you, and it gets very intense as you can hear three days of just that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take it and then you take your awareness through your body. He called it sweeping. You bring, it's not like, um, it's not like Shavasana, deep relaxation after yoga. It's, you're not trying to do anything. You're not trying to relax. You're just noticing what's there at, at each part of your body. Starting from the, from the tip of your part, head. Yeah. And then you slowly, um, with, you know, with your eyes closed, with, from within your body, you notice everything in each part of your body. It goes very slowly at first, you know. And then from, the, from your feet, you move back up again um, to your head. Just noticing what's there, and as thoughts come again, you let them go. And uh, we did that for seven days from five in the morning till ten. Wow. Mirabai, you're sort of blowing my mind because that is the most recent addition to my practice because talk about Thomas Keating, right? There are all of these things, and I'm sure you've experienced this, where you read something again and you're like, wait, everybody was talking about embodiment. I just always ignored it. I just was like, I don't know what that means. So I'm just like, that would happen with me and Ramdas or Eckhart Tolle. I would listen to them. And like one of the nine things they were saying, the one thing I was ready for would come. Lately, what I've been doing is that sweep. And I was just reading this morning that Eckhart Tolle is saying like, keeping a part of your awareness. I'm not using woo-woo. I literally just mean your focus in your body. He always goes to your hands. I think the reason is there's so many nerve endings in your hands. Mm -hmm. It's easy for you to close your eyes and go, how do I know I have hands? Even if, if don't move them, but how do I know? That's, that's like a sweep of just your hands, but you were doing that. Here's a way to Westernize this, by the way. That this is where the power is. It's not power in how we know. It's not going to get you a table at a restaurant, but like you'll feel it. I mean, could you speak to that feeling of aliveness that would I have to imagine would be surging in you? Like it, it's it's intoxicating. Yeah. Well, you know, it might get you a table if if there were still tables at restaurants. But um, <laughs> I remember traveling with Ramdas in the early days. You know. We, as I said, we were in India for two years, then we came back t- together and then um, with others. And then for the next 50 years, I think, um, we did so many things together, you know, mm. teaching, traveling, writing, so on. So in the beginning, I remember traveling with him. And because he was so in this moment, Everything would just, like, he could walk into a restaurant and not know anybody there, you know. And all of a sudden, everybody would be rushing to find him a table. He just had such presence, you know. And just the most ordinary encounters, you know, like giving your ticket to the airline person or something, you Mm know. I really, I learned so much from him. Not about, I mean, I didn't have that, that vast you know, vibrational presence. But I learned to, you know, be really kind and loving and open uh, in ordinary exchanges. Because you're in the moment. I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, see, there was a little bit of a cart before the horse again in my tradition, which was like, 
be kind because like, because you're supposed to be kind. But what I didn't realize was like when you're really locked in to the reality, I love how Eckhart Tolle is almost funny where he's like, thinking anything exists other than the moment is insanity. He's basically like roasting you. So if you can really put the the needle on the record just in the moment where you're handing your ticket to the ticket collector at the airport, that's you're going to be kind because you're being aware, you're being present. That's that's yeah. where kindness sort of happens in spite of you. You're not thinking <laughs> be kind. It's not willpower kindness. It's just the natural when I'm with my daughter and we're being yeah. present because she's a master yes. at being present. Yes. We're in bliss. We're in love. Yeah. And it's just, and I'm not going be a good dad, be a, be a good play partner, be a silly monkey. I'm just watching her and I'm letting, I'm feeling the air resting on my skin and I'm feeling, I'm smelling her. All of these things that can bring us into the moment. Like, like we know when we have a great memory, you know what the air felt like, you know what the smells were, you, the colors were alive. You can bring that into the ordinary. I thought for sure you were going to, I was almost hoping that you were going to say that Ramdas, because one of the things I relate to him is that he could be grumpy. And I was like, if you want to see me get grumpy, uh, have me get off a plane uh, my third weekend in a row, and the car isn't there. This is such a high-class problem in such another life. Mm-hmm. But like when you're traveling and you have to get off and you're calling a car service and you're just like, I, you had my info. Where are you? I, get ma- I, get, I lose myself. Uh-huh. And, I, and I know RD would have – I'm not fishing for that story. It's not that kind of show. But I'm I'm also just as fed by the story How that is this anyhow? <laughs> we're filed under comedy for some reason. So I'll I'll make jokes from time to time. <laughs> but I I get so much more life and juice out of the fact that it's like being in the moment is such a simple practice, but it's sort of the whole ball of wax. And it's and not easy. Yeah. It's it's also not easy. He you're reminding me that Ramdas would talk about being tempted by this power that he was like, by being present and by being loving, I think I could sleep with anybody I'd I'd Mm -hmm. want to. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't mean manipulate. He means I'm just so appealing and seductive that I could use that. (laughs) And he was. (laughs) He was gay. So (laughs) he was bisexual, but he really was gay. So, um, yes, I never, we never had that between us. It was such a relief. (laughs) (laughs) i gotta be having sex with this beautiful person you could get that out of the way (laughs) but he could oh he could be more than grumpy there was um (laughs) one of the things we did over the years was um save a foundation and that was after we came back from india we wanted maharaji your audience knows who Maharaj is. I'm pretty sure they listen this far. <laughs> Maharaj is Ramdas's guru and, and your guru, I'm assuming. And yeah. And um he sent uh that uh one of the people with us and he's actually been on CNN a lot during the um during I was gonna call it the plague. Um yeah. Larry Brilliant. <laughs> um yeah, Larry Brilliant. Um uh, and he's been really good about everything and what i love is he started almost every interview by saying well first i want to say it's not the zombie apocalypse 
<laughs> settled for a while. Yes. Coronavirus. But anyhow, when he was with Maharaji, Maharaji, he had trained as a doctor and then hadn't practiced yet. And um, um, most people, many people were just out of college uh, when we got there. I was, I had had a life. I had actually been married before and then went back to graduate school. So I was a little bit older, but Larry had gone to medical school, but he hadn't practiced. And um, he'd come over overland on his hippie bus. And um, um, Maharaji sent him to Delhi to work on the campaign that WHO, the famous WHO, was running to um, uh, attempt to end smallpox. The, um, and as you may know, smallpox was the first infectious disease on the planet to be eliminated. Mm. Um, there are two strains in laboratories, one here and one in Russia but um, doesn't exist in humans anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was a really big deal. I mean, people were dying, dying, and it was uh, a terrible scourge. So they worked on it. The last case was in 76 in Bangladesh, but I was part of that. And others who were part of it, we came back to this country and wanted, we all wanted to give something back, not we appreciated not just our teachers, but um, but the countries who that had supported us during this time and allowed us to become different from who we had been before and to live that out for a while before we came back here. Um, and so um, we they got together and brought some others of us together um, to create a foundation, and we chose to work on blindness in in Nepal at first and in India. Um, and it's a long story and a great one. We'd started with no money at all, and we raised all the money through rock and roll. The Grateful Dead was the house band. And um, <laughs> so Ramdas and I were both part of it. And, um, uh, yeah, five million people now have their sites been restored through Seva over wow. these years. Um, but uh, in the process, we were always, tr we were trying to create a new way of working together. And we were looking at the ways in which our work can be our practice and how we can learn from everything we do. It's the message of the Bhagavad Gita. It's karma yoga in the Hindu tradition mm -hmm. that, that, Awakening doesn't just happen on the on the pillow, but um, but it happens through your work and through your life, through your parenting. So, and um, when we first came back and introduced meditation, yoga, and so on, it was very much in this monastic model, and people thought you had to go on retreat to do it, and that you know the real waking up happened when you were doing a quote spiritual practice we wanted to we wanted to explore ourselves how life could be practiced how you can use everything to wake up so of course it wasn't easy <laughs> and in the meantime we we're trying to we we're trying to restore sight to all these people in asia and um uh so it, it, it was very intense at times and there was a lot of of um tension around the balance between being and working on yourself and waking up uh, and doing and healing people. And there were people, 
on different ends of the continuum. Ramdas is very much on the being end of the continuum, of course. Um, but we, and we had these meetings that um, one twice a year, and we lived in teepees in Northern California. And we uh, had one was one week long, and the other was two weeks long, a board meeting. We'd bring our kids, you know, and every meeting, in halfway through the meeting, Ramdas would say, this is my last meeting. I'm leaving. This I came to this. <laughs> I helped build this organization so it would be the living truth, and it no longer is, and I'm leaving. And sometimes he would storm out, you know, one time into a rainstorm of lightning and thunder, and then this and that would happen, and then by the end of the meeting, he would always be back on board, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, he could um, be cranky. (laughs) Yeah. How, How were you in all of that? It's a heavy thing. You know, I love the idea of karma yoga. That was a life-changing idea for me, was using, uh, you said it beautifully, but the, the way I put it is using the everyday events of your life. Every, washing the dishes is for your healing. This conversation, I, I often want to start this podcast with a reminder that this is what we're doing. This is all that's happening. The people that are listening, this is part of your karma, just means the action of your life. Use this, use everything that's happening, not just the stuff in the holy places, not just the stuff with your eyes closed and incense burning. Everything, 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 everything. No flaw in the system. But how were you with that? I I, I can see Ramdas getting testy and as a big fan, but uh, I I love hearing those stories. That's a heavy thing. Did you feel a charge to be a love and lighter? Were you supposed to be a holy person? I. Not so much, because when we first came back, as I said, everybody wanted to be a teacher. You know, we had, we brought back Ram Dass, he said, this jewel, you know, we wanted to share it with everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, so most of us became teachers, you know, of course, Ram Dass. And, um, and Joseph and Sharon and Krishna Nas was leading chanting and Danny was teaching. Um, and uh, I, but as I said, the, model of being a spiritual teacher was still like a monastic or retreat setting. And um, not to mention that you may notice that all those people I mentioned were men, but um, there was a real bias in the beginning because all the Asian teachers have been men. But, um, but I came back and I was pregnant and had baby and uh, there was no way people could hold baby and meditation in the mind at the same time. Mm. Um, and so um, my, and we needed a uh, livelihood. We lived in that big house that Jack was talking about in Cambridge mm-hmm. um, yesterday um, with a group of other people. Um, and, but we needed a livelihood because we had a child. So um, we started a business on principles of right livelihood, which we had learned about in, in India. And uh, we, so we had uh, guidelines of like always tell the truth, you know, be kind. Um, it, it was based on fairness and justice. We, um, it was very a diverse staff. And at the end of um, each year, we distributed all the 
uh, prophets among the staff because we had Red Mao, even though we love Tibetans. <laughs> and so, um, um, yeah, so I was, I spent the first 10 years back really looking at ways. I mean, we had meditation, yoga, and so on in the workplace, but we also worked on creating community and just, um, just uh, setting the intention that we learn that we use everything we're doing to wake up and we'd have weekly meetings with everyone. We all sat on the floor, you know, and um, we, we'd open the meetings reading the I Ching and then we'd see what that had to do with what, what we were supposed to do. <laughs> we had 65 people working. So it was, it was a scene. And, uh, but um, so that had been my path for a while. And so then at Seva, I was also um, there very interested in, you know, in helping it work out in that context as well. In, in like a business setting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was what finally, not finally, but led me in uh, 2007 to work with Google to develop search inside yourself, which has been their most popular course they've ever offered of any kind. Is that right? Yeah. Tens of thousands of Googlers globally have taken the course and it's all based on you know basic basic practices of you know awareness love i think that's so far out i i love hearing that stuff the i i've seen richard Rohr do talks at google i've done talks at google and it's always with some google employee and i guess i went in going like this might be this might be tricky like mm-hmm. i i did a talk for my book at google and i was like all right, I'm just going to I'm going to talk as if you're interested in this. Yeah. And went so hard into you are not your story, you are your soul, which is a Christian word, but you are your awareness, you are yeah. your consciousness, which by the way, I always love pointing this out is why we love body swap movies. It's like what if I was a woman or because there's this part of us that knows and will never tire of telling stories like that that knows that this thing that grew around me to house what I really am could have been something else. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's a hint to our uh, soul curiosity. So I was sort of talking about that. And this is going to sound like a brag, but I really mean it as a, as a testament to the Google community. They were like, we never sell books at these things. And we sold out of the book, which was phenomenal. Like there was this line of the Google people. So I went in being like, these are these are hardcore materialists. We're dealing with like ones and zeros, and and there they are. When they interview Richard Rohr, I have to imagine in your work with them. Could you speak to a little bit of what you make of the openness of like the forefront of technology and the craving for something ancient to go alongside with it? Are you asking me that? Or are you oh, asking? Yeah, me I, I was oh, saying, yeah. what are your thoughts on? Did, yeah, well, make sense. I mean. You know, it's it's more complicated now. That so I was um, there like 2007 to 10 working with them. I wasn't there all the time, but um, uh, and in the beginning, you know, there there was such a spirit of, you know, we're going to do something so great for humans on the planet. We're going to we're going to not do evil and we're going to make all the information in the world available to all the people in the world for free. Mm. And they, you know, it was the spirit there 
It sounds like the 60s, doesn't it? It sounds like something. It did. And it was really fabulous. And we had, um, uh, there was so much support for everybody. And one, uh, one fifth of your time, you were, you could do whatever you wanted as long as it in some way had to do with the mission of the organization. Um, that's how we did search inside yourself. We, people use, use their, their 20%. So, um, uh, you know, I mean, things have happened, but it's, but it was, you know, it was very, uh, it was very globally integrated. I mean, it was kind of, then it was kind of one third Chinese, one third Indian, one third mix of everybody else. Of course, there were too, too few women and too few like African-Americans and others. Uh, uh, but, um, but everybody was young and, um, you know, really enthusiastic and, you know, wanted to change the world. But, and what they thought was a really positive way. And so much so that they really, you know, overlook things like issues of privacy and so on that have, that have been revealed later. Mm. But, um, so they were very curious. And I think having all that Asian influence um, really was part of their, they, um, my friend Gopi Kaliyil, who I've taught with a lot, he was the one who introduced yoga into, um, into Google and is still there. He's the head of brand marketing and the chief yogi. And um, uh, they, they had more yoga classes going than, uh, and probably still, than any other institution in the world. Um, wow. and I, I think, you know, so the opening had to do with all those things. Mm. And um, uh, it was great. Now search inside yourself. We spun off a nonprofit so it could be introduced into other companies. And now it's in all kinds of places. Yeah. And it's teaching people mindfulness, like teaching the tech community? It's, or Yeah. It's, it's basically um, meditation, mindfulness meditation, um, uh, compassion meditation, uh, loving kindness. And then we developed a number of interactive practices like um, mindful listening, um, and mindful emailing, and um, and then the practice you mentioned before, just like me, which is has to do with um, cultivating compassion. Essentially, mm. you've mentioned it a couple times the the idea of being a, a woman teacher, and you we sort of glazed past that. That was my fault. Having a baby at a time when you were becoming a spiritual teacher, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what that was like. I mean, it, it's still something that exists now but being a woman in this field that we do, when you think of the spiritual teachers, you go, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, <laughs> traditionally. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm trying not to be guilty of just being like, what was Ramdas like? What was it like for you? You were there. You did the, those. You were with Maharaji. Your heart was filled. You came back. What was the stigma? We want to think everybody was groovy, but it couldn't have been. I mean, it, it can't still be. Yeah, well, it was, you know, inherited, as I said, from we learned to meditate in these very male environments, in, in, in Buddhist monasteries or all the Tibetan teachers, and the, they were all men. All the, um, and uh, 
we learn that way. And then, of course, we inherit, even though women's liberation had been happening in the 60s, still, as we know, this culture um, still had a lot, it was still leaning on patriarchy. And um, so I think that was part of the reason, and those were parts of the reason that it happened that way when, when we came back. Um, and, um, and some of the Asian teachers, the older teachers who, who came to this country, I think just about all of them were also men. Um, and uh, even when Sharon started teaching, she was, she was also young. She was 19, I think, when she went to India. She was an undergraduate, anyhow. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's a hard question to answer. I, I had a background, um, as I said, I had, before I went back to graduate school, I had already been working, and I worked at Cape Canaveral on the first man moon launch, Saturn Apollo. And um, it was... <laughs> It was really the male environment. I was you worked a, with that? Yes, I did. I, oh, my goodness. I edited manuals on how to fill the Saturn V with oxygen. And I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was what? the first, first woman in Cape Canaveral to be issued a hard hat and a jumpsuit. Wow. And I, I don't know. I think and they needed me because I had skills that other people didn't have, so they accepted me. Um, and I just was, I was totally into it. So I didn't, I don't know, I didn't question it, but it was very odd. I mean, I once worked in, in a big room with mostly tech engineers and tech writers with a hundred men and myself. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and then when Rondas, uh, like when the first summer of Naropa, which, which Jack talked about, um, Rondas had 13 teaching assistants because there were so many people there. And um, he had 12 men and me. Wow. I'm not quite, you know, I don't really know the answer to it. It was, I, so I grew up in a home with a single mom and two other sisters. I grew up in a female home where with an Irish Catholic mom who, you know, you just do what needs to be done and you do it well and you never mm. complain. Mm. And so I, maybe that had to do with like um, me not buying in so much to a male dominated culture, but I'm not sure. I wasn't mm. ever particularly aggressive about it or, you know, um, but. It seems so strange to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, so that, that's from the perspective of like, why it happened to me and, you know, and sort of why it happened for other women who weren't brought in until, you know, enough of us got together and started looking at it and talking about it and figuring out not only um, should, you know, should it be all men, but women had so much to offer to teaching the Dharma. that is just different from the way men teach it. And, um, uh, that was so important for us to hear the way it comes through and, you know, so we can put that all together within ourselves. 
That's that's funny that you say that because that's what I was gonna. Uh, I started to say was it's interesting to me that so many of the the virtues that Ramdas and others uh, have cultivated through practice are <laughs> sort of traditionally not always, but are traditionally sort of feminine values, qualities. Yeah, yeah. Meaning, over your shoulder is walking each other home, which is the great book about um, dying that you wrote with Ramdas. Um, and when I think about spaciousness, um, being in touch with your emotions, openness, um, flow, literally flow is built into the anatomy of a woman. Uh, Ramdas had a lot of beautiful feminine energy that I think he worked on. So it's, it's so strange that we've been so slow on the uptake to be like, why, why not go to... I, again, not all women have that, but I'm just saying a lot yeah. of women tend to have an easier time with embodiment, with being aware of their feelings. These are all things that are part of the spiritual path. And we've been resistant. I think, I've been thinking about prejudice. Women are sort of seen like open fields. They're like spacious potentials. I, I'm talking about if you're looking from a stereotype prejudice view, you're like, that's something... I'm a bee and that's a flower, but I can pollinate the flower and I can spread the flower and I'll have a million flowers, but there's not a lot of inherent respect to the flower. Again, this is very broad strokes and wrong, but I think that's one of the prejudices that people have. Men go out and build things and they, they spread the seed and they spread the message and women are good if you're looking for a place to spread it. By the way, these are not my feelings. There's this, I love the show Mad Men and they talk about, there's a feminist on Mad Men that talks to Peggy and she's like, men are like soup and they want a pot and they look (laughs) at women as a pot. And she says to Peggy, and it really changes Peggy's character. She says, who wants to be a pot? And I see that we're still looking at women as good sidekicks and good nurturing energy to the man who's going to go out and actually shake things up. But it's so strange that the men that are spiritual uh, leaders tend to work on their feminine qualities. Yeah. Now we can listen to it because that penis has vaginal qualities <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. Things are changing yeah. and they have to. I mean, one, one thing, my, my experience of like women's, um, insight, loving insight and wisdom is that I think women um, learn more, like move into um, awakening and wisdom in uh, collaboration with others. That thinking together is... um, What's about to die? My phone. My Read phone. it, your book. Read it, walking each other home. <laughs> Be like a stone, Mirabai. You sit with that phone and you tell it. Your grief is welcome here. Your fear is welcome. You be a steady rock for that phone as it passes. <laughs> Only on this program would that be a good thing that the phone is um, you were saying, I'm sorry. Something. Yeah, but, um, and I think that it's becoming pretty clear that that kind of thinking, that we can't, like, no single person can do it alone. 
people keep asking for leadership, but you know, the single male leadership we, we are seeing is not, um, it can take us down some really dangerous pathways. Isn't that interesting? I mean, when you think of Trump's inability, it seems to have that true collaboration. Like he really is like a, I don't give a shit. What do you think? I'm going to take that non FDA approved drug just because nobody, nobody tells me what to do. It's just like, I'm going to do it my way, baby. And we're a culture that just like responds, even if it is like, reckless we're just like look at that guy go like i think so many people are still impressed by that and it is more feminine to be like let's talk let's discuss let's flow let's convene but it's interesting when i think about your wonderful book which i i just sort of referenced in your phone passing away now you think of the energy that you want to be with when you're passing as a feminine energy you want it to be open you don't want to be invaded when you're passing away you don't want someone what is the impression of everybody's dad it's like you know what you should do like you should really you should do a gratitude list before you pass or you should tell tell people you love them like that's not what you want you want spaciousness that's that's so much about what your book is like you know what tim larry used to say what's that i'm I'm tired of being should upon should upon (laughs) i mean right that's what I know your book has been out for a while. So this isn't press for your book, but I mean, when you read about someone passing, there's a, there's a quote in the book. It's like the way to die is the way to live, Mm -hmm. which is not just to stay present, but to stay open. So we were talking about the devil being in silence when you're, when you're passing, as we all sort of are, you have terror, you have grief, you have all these systems that are running self-preservation systems that are going to flood your body with panic, like, or whatever it might be. And we need to learn to like have loving awareness and loving kindness for all of that. And you need a real spiritual master. Again, I'm just telling you what I've learned from your book to be with that and be a conduit for whatever comes up, not uh, don't panic. You should trust in Jesus. Okay. There's your panic. Let's let's give it space. Let's work it through. Let's 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 welcome it. It won't know what to do if we welcome it. You know what I mean? It won't get any energy if we welcome it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. I mean, Ramdas just passed. You wrote a book about dying, and and he and he died. I mean, that has to be pretty profound for you. Well, it was, of course. I mean, the great there were many great things about doing the book with him. It took us two years of. Um, conversations. I mean, I just I would go to Maui every four months or something, and we'd have a couple of conversations. And mm. um, but the best was that I knew when he died that he was fine. That he was. Uh, we had talked about it so much that um, I knew that he was just going to make a a really open, peaceful transition from one state to another. And there was no fear, for sure. Um, and um, uh, so that was great. Um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And um, for both of us, really, we, we told each other back in the day when, when we finally finished all those courses at in Bodh Gaya, um, it was, we had been silent so much 
And before that, I've been this literature teacher. So language is really important to me. So I said, um, Ram Dass, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to say. How do we talk when we get back out into the world, you know? And he said, um, say what you know, don't say what you don't know. Hmm. I was like, um, maybe I'll never speak again. <laughs> but so when we decided to do this book, we, we both, of course, after all these years, had talked about dying a lot and had ideas about dying and had read books about dying and all around us have been saying the words about dying since we here now. And, um, but, well, I mean, I knew that, that these 20 years since his stroke, he'd been dealing with so many, with so much pain and so much uh, of his body falling apart. Um, and just looking more closely and moving more closely to dying that I, um, I wanted to be able to hear what he knew now. So we said to each other, let's just say what we know and not say what we don't know. Hmm. And, and if either of us starts, you know, going off on, you know, the kind of riff on dying that, you know, um, we'll stop and we'll say, right now, in this moment, what do I know? And um, so, and this is something anybody, you can do this with a friend and it doesn't, you're, your subject doesn't have to be dying. You can just say, okay, you know, let's have a conversation about this thing we care about. And let's only say what we know. And let go of everything else that we sort of know or that we've heard from other people and so on. Say what we know and not say what we don't know. And um, so it was, it was beautiful. It was just, every day was exciting because... Mm. We didn't know what we were going to say, you know, mm. and um, uh, yeah, it was a it was a blessing. Yeah, it, it, the book is a blessing too. I'm so glad that it exists. Um, I've resisted the urge to give it to everybody because it's it's sort of hard to be like you should read this, but the people that seem open to it, I'm always telling yeah, them. I, I feel the same, you know. But it, it, it's it's a heavy it's a heavy text. It's not like a beginner course necessarily, yeah. but. I the best part has been that so many people have gotten in touch, you know, mm. people who were dying or people whose loved ones were dying or, you mm -hmm, know, people mm -hmm. diagnosed with something or, you know. Um, it's weird for me to know the books that I'll have. If I am dying in a hospital, I'll be like, that's that's one of the books. Isn't that strange to be like, well, you have to, if I'm packing a bag to go die. You're like, well, where's, where's walking each other home? But it's yeah. strange. I guess what's even stranger is before I didn't know what book I would want. Huh. I, I knew some of them, but this mm -hmm. is the one that's like, here, let's distill it down. But when we talk about a fearless or an elegant, I like fearless passing, which is um, obviously, you know, Ramdas would say love and death. He was quoting, but love and death are the great gifts most of us leave unopened. Mm -hmm. So using it as, again, karma yoga, what is this experience teaching me, teaching my soul, the bigger me, not, mm -hmm. not just my body and my story. What is this teaching the whole shebang about existence itself? What, to bring a little Richie into it, 
Richard Rohr helped me understand that when Christ is talking about um, the grain of, uh, of wheat, he says, if the grain of wheat cracks and dies, it can sprout this huge plant. But if it doesn't, nothing happens. It's just a seed. So he, he's sort of hinting us to the idea, which is all of spirituality, that you have to die before you die. Yeah. yeah. And when, when you tell me that Ramdas, as, as all of us sort of hippy dippies like to say, left his body, that points to someone that died before he died. There, my favorite, one of my favorite pages of Be Here Now, it says in, in I would say, aggressive type, you must die, you must die. That is the trip, is you must die. Here's the good news. You're going to go to infinite potential, everlasting light, everlasting love. You're going to become who you really are. The bad news is you can't come. <laughs> like yeah. like Pete, Pete Holmes can't go. Pete Holmes has to die. And I have the choice of Pete Holmes can die when my body dies or Pete Holmes can die, believe it or not, even though my business is Pete Holmes and you're talking to Pete Holmes and blah, 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 Pete Holmes. This Pete Holmes does a lot of work every day trying to let go a little bit more and letting that die. Yes. And that's why I'm so glad I have you. I have these teachers. I have Val. I have this conspiracy of people that are going I'm with you. That's not real. That's not real. It's what Thomas Merton, that's your false self. doesn't mean we have to look down on it. It's not the bad self. It's not the nasty self. It's not the ugly self. It's not the evil self, but it's not real. And that's what's in, that's what's showing up in silence. So here's a Christian counterpoint. I'm still thinking about the question you asked to silence. Richard says, if you're present, you'll know the presence. Look to any other spiritual text for other examples of this what's showing up is awareness itself, which is God, which is, which is it. And the thing that has to die was never real to begin with. And that seems when I was with Ramdas, forgive me, I've told the story before, but I saw him shortly before he passed. And Dasima was telling a story about how he almost died. And she was like, she said it very lovingly. She was like, we were all so worried. And Ramdas grabbed at the hem of her shirt and was like, I wasn't, I wasn't. <laughs> And he really made sure like, that she looked at him. He did it in like a badass way. Not an aggressive way, but I believed him 100%. There, was, there wasn't a show business to it. He was going, they were like, we almost lost him. We were so worried. He was like, I wasn't. I was oh. like, that's a guy, that's a soul who knows who he is. That I feel like he learned that from his stroke and from his work was everything keeps falling away. Mm. Here's my speaking engagements. They're gone. Here's my youth. It's gone. Here's my body. It's literally falling apart. When I was with him, you'd see half of his body was, was it wasn't dead, but it was, it couldn't move and it was just laying there. So yeah. this is a guy, karma yoga. He goes, okay, that my right arm, my right leg or whatever it was, I believe it was his, his right, my left, yeah. can't move but I'm still here. So what am I? What am I if I'm still here and that's gone? That, that sounds like the grain of wheat cracking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that your book is filled with stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, um, we, we, we did a lot to, because it's about dying. Not most people don't think they want to read about dying, but we did a lot of things to make it, Kind of, at one point, we looked at each other and we said, 
how can writing a book about dying be so much fun? <laughs> <laughs> but it was. And so we, we lightened it, you know, by two pages long and there's illustrations throughout and we laughed a lot through it. Um, and uh, it, it's so lightening. I, I felt at the end of doing it, I just, it wasn't like I knew anything new about dying, like no facts or anything. But I just, I feel so much lighter about it than, than I did before. And yeah. it, I wasn't like really in, felt like I had like real deep traumatic fear of dying. But of course I had some, everybody does. And I, but I just feel so much lighter about it now. Mm-hmm. Not quite like I wasn't, but like moving there, you know, mm-hmm. another thing he said one morning was during that same time, we did think he was going to die and we were worried. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I jumped on a plane. I heard at night the next morning I jumped on the plane to Maui, which is not so easy from here. It's three planes. Um, and, um, but, uh, anyhow, then any, we really thought he was dying. He, we were sitting next to his bed for 24 hours. He was barely present. And so then the next day down at the breakfast table, we're talking about what we should do. People wanted to come over. We were going to have to tell them they should keep silent. And Rondas wheels into the room, into the table. <laughs> said, Rondas, what are you doing here? <laughs> He's sitting up in his chair. He's looking good. I said, you know, people have been calling, and, and they want to know, like, what's happening? What should I tell them? He said, um... Tell them, tell them I was dying, and I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. One of the great things about Ramdas is a sense of humor, yeah. and and you know it's it's from seeing the relativity of everything mm-hmm. that makes it funny. Uh, get so attached to things being this or that and they're not and, right. and, and it's genuinely funny i completely agree i think it's funny when i said your your book is a heavy text i just mean it's the real stuff it's like a very true text but you're right it is light and it is fun and i'm sort of like you guys i'm i'm a weirdo that enjoys talking about death but i think people do even more than they know because it it in it introduces the urgency. It reminds you of of something real. You know what I mean? Like he even said that he's like I, I he said I'm one of the weird people that like to be with people when they're dying because yeah. I know I'm going to see something true, and I'm going to be a part of something true. And in all of this, just brushing the front part of our teeth world we live in, there is something. I felt the same way when when Leela was born. I was like that was the truest thing I've ever seen in my life, even though you could watch a video of a, of a birth, there's something very different about being. Oh, absolutely. You don't know. There's something so similar about births and deaths. I mean, a lot of poetry has stated that, but, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but having been 
in the room with both birth and death. The first time I, I, that happened, the first, I had given birth and then I was with someone who died two years later. But I realized that, um, there, it's not, I didn't realize, I experienced there was something in the energy in the room that was, at first it was like so familiar. And then I realized it was just the same mm-hmm. as the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's mysterious. I don't, you know, it's hard to talk about. Yeah. It's really true. Yeah. Same door, different side. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really trippy, but it, I think, Again, that great Ramdas quote where he talks about the denial of death takes up so much energy that could be used yeah. for for something better. So when I spent so much of my time not talking about it, I think I was using it to to deny it, to not yeah. not thinking about it was taking more energy, strangely, than just talking about it and just thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. But we've talked about that a lot. So with everything that's that's going on in the world, I, I finally thought of how to ask this as a question with all the racial injustice and all the change that we're seeing happening. Um, and it's a simple question. Uh, so I hopefully, I don't think you'll feel put on the spot, but how is this a spiritual issue? You know what I'm saying? Like, how does this come down to what you were learning in India and what you learned from Maharaji and what were, what the message of Ramdas is it's manifesting in this ugly way. And I, I feel like that would lead us maybe into the just like me practice, but it's up to you. Well, um, so much, of course, but a few things that came up for me during this. Um, one <clears throat> was Maharaji used to say, you could plan for 500 years and you don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly the coronavirus is certainly an experience of that. I mean, when you think that a bat bit an animal in China and almost instantly, you know, the whole world changed. All of our lives changed. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, it's like the butterfly effect, basically, but a bat. And um, so, you know, it's we're all like busy, you know, planning and controlling our lives. And we have to do those things. But it, it, for me, it was a reminder of the essential humility that we need to bring to leading our lives. We're doing everything we can, but um, at any moment, everything could change. And we need to be, we need to be, you say, in the moment enough so that Dronda says about dying, it's, it'll be this moment and this moment, and then the moment of dying will be another moment. Mm-hmm. So things like this, I think, like really remind us again to be here. And then when things start to look at, one, one of the things that's come up is um, uh, anticipatory grief. I've been in various conversations about grief, grief because of the book. And, uh, but I hadn't, 
I hadn't thought about anticipatory grief, the kind of grief that's because we thought we knew what was going to happen. You thought you were going to be traveling around to different cities and, and speaking and being with wonderful people. And, you know, we thought we'd be doing all kinds of things. And we were pretty sure it was going to be that way. And then it wasn't. And, and then it's not going to be. We don't know. I mean, in the first, financially, a lot of people are really struggling. And I saw because of my age, uh, I can't really generate much income anymore. And so the the money I had in, in IRAs, like seeing the stock market crashing, it was a perfect example. We thought it was going to be a certain way. I had it like all carefully worked out. And it's not going to be that way. And you see all the all the mind forms you've stored and you were so sure were real um, Mm. are not. And they never were. They were all made up in your mind in the first place. Um, So just keeping that, that sense of holding it lightly, whatever it is that you think this world is at this moment and what it's, what it's going to be at the same time, of course, you're leading the most, you know, a, kind and loving and smart life you can, but just to have that always holding it with the understanding that it's uh, ephemeral, everything changes and it may change in ways that you never dreamed. Mm. That's one thing. For sure. What about when it comes to the, the racism and the, and the violence that we're seeing now? Again, you know, uh, one thing there is that so much of um, the injustice, the systemic inequality, um, we need to, it's come out of, it comes out of, Mainly out of ignorance, I would say, of of people who are creating and sustaining these systems. Um, I mean, mean deep ignorance, because we could say that at this point in our history, you know, everybody has been, well, police, for example, they all now go through this, you know, this implicit bias training. But what... um, what commitment to spiritual development shows us is what we've been talking about all along is how much is, you know, how much is in there? Um, How many fixed ideas we have and how difficult it is for us to let them go to well, you know, to acknowledge them and let them go and, and dismantling uh, racism in ourselves it's very hard for people. And, but you really have to be willing to, you know, you have to be willing to be fragile. You have to be willing to feel awful about, about holding these ideas and having acted on these ideas um, mm. before you can see them, let them go, and then listen for what, um, what a more true, just, uh, compassionate, loving way to be in the world is. So, there's, I've been thinking about that 
a lot. And also, I think it's not a coincidence that uh, so many of the people who are demonstrating, and it's so amazing, are young. I mean, first of all, it's hard to be out there in that scene <laughs> physically. But um, uh, because, you know, it's in the, in the natural unfolding of things for most people, it seems to be, you know, easier to be open to a new ideas uh, when you're younger, you haven't been holding on for that many years. So, um, and so I see in that, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, hope for the, for the future of this, because it's, it's based in the most fundamental misunderstanding of who we are. Mm. Um, that we're separate from each other, that we're essentially different from each other, that we, that it's not possible to hold the amazing diversity, the wonderful ways in which each of us is unique and different and brings something different um, into the world. And at the same time, the ways in the, what it is that we share. And, you know, when you open up to that, you, your natural response to others is, um, uh, is just love, you know, mm. it's us. It's only, it's just us, all of us, mm. uh, and appreciation for differences in people because that makes my life richer. Um, yeah, I have to say that now I'm, I'm speaking about basic spiritual truths, but the first days this was going on, I found really hard. Mm. It just, and, and I think that, you know, just seeing the viciousness and then the whole matter of, of the president responding by separating us and, 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 uh, well, the idea of domination of people mm. who you are supposed to be caring for and taking care of and uh, creating mm. a just world for the idea of domination is so, um, you know, it, it so goes against what we're trying to move toward. Or mm. It's funny that brought up the, it's almost like bad parenting. It's like, what, wh- why, why are you doing it? The domineering, scary way. It's, it's so strange. Yeah. To me. Yeah. Well, what I thought that was lovely, the thing that has always moved me the most when I've heard you teach at the Ram Dass Retreat, and we kept talking about it throughout, seems so apropos right now. Valerie and I talk about the the Just Like Me practice, and we're like, I wish people on both sides of this could do this for each other. Uh, I mean, we've there's data for gazing. You put two people on two sides of an issue, if they can sit and connect in their shared humanity and in their, and in their souls, that that has profound change. So I thought maybe you could lead us through it. I know you've literally done it hundreds of times, but uh, it, I, I think if people, I think it would mean a lot to people if we could have you lead us through it. Um, and if you want to explain it a little bit. Yeah. So this this is a practice um, 
that it's not a practice to um, replace all the wonderful work that many people are doing now around appreciating difference, diversity, um, and the importance of the each of us bringing our, our unique history and talents in, into the world. Um, and, resi- and resistance, too, I feel like. It, it's not to say stop resisting or anything. It, it's, it's a much more base-level human thing, right? yeah. if I hear you correctly. I, I want to be careful on that, too. I'm not saying, hey, everybody calm down. There's, there's obviously a place and an appropriate pr- place for resistance. And this practice, even if we weren't in these times, has meant so much to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's such a much longer conversation. But in our resistance work, we want to be resisting um, injustice from a place of appreciating and having compassion for everyone. And this is this practice um, by, um, by increasing your appreciation for what it is we all share with each other uh, helps you increase your compassion. Um, so uh, it's usually done with a partner, um, but you can do this by just bringing somebody to mind and you can, um, wherever you're sitting now, um, if you are sitting, as I said, I listen to this podcast when I'm on my walks, but you can yeah. do that. If you're but, driving, don't close your eyes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so either, but you can close your eyes only because it um, eliminates some of the visual distraction. Um, so you don't need to, you can have a soft gaze, just not be, whizzing around looking at different things so that you can bring your full attention to this. Hmm. And um, so you can bring to mind, just think of someone um, and it can be, this works with absolutely everyone. You can, but you might bring to some, someone to mind who you don't think of as being so much like you Um, bring someone who you think of in whatever way um, as you know, different from you. Just bring that person into mind, you know, and see their face and then as I say these phrases, just silently uh, repeat them and then we'll we'll just watch to see what happens as as your mind comes up with um, different thoughts during it. um, Just let them go and bring it back again to this person and what the um, phrases make, uh, what it brings up for you. Um, so there's no wrong way to do this. So begin, just allowing yourself to be quiet, breathing in and out a couple of times. And then seeing this person in your mind. This person has a body and a mind just like me. This person has feelings, emotions, and thoughts just like me. 
this person has experienced physical pain and suffering, just like me. This person has experienced emotional pain and suffering, just like me. This person has at some time been sad, just like me. This person at some time has been disappointed in life, just like me. This person has been angry, just like me. This person has been hurt by others, just like me. This person has felt unworthy or inadequate at times, just like me. This person worries and is frightened sometimes, just like me. This person will die, just like me. This person has longed for friendship, just like me. This person is learning about life, just like me. This person wants to be caring and kind to others, just like me. This person wants to be content with what life has given, just like me. This person wishes to be free from pain and suffering, just like me. This person wishes to be safe everywhere and healthy strong, just like me. This person wishes to be happy, just like me. This person wishes to be loved, just like me. And now, allowing wishes for well-being for this person to arise in you. I wish that you have the strength and resources and social support you need to navigate the difficulties in this life with ease. I wish that you be free from all pain and suffering. I wish that you be peaceful 
and happy and experience joy. And I wish that you be loved because you are a fellow human being just like me. Now, saying goodbye and thank you to this person coming back into the room of this podcast. <laughs> thank you, Mirabai. Wow, that is the first time I did that was with, um, boy, my podcast hosting voice sounds so jarring now. <laughs> <laughs> this, this high energy. So uh, coming back, I forgive me, everybody. Um, <laughs> thank you. I did it with Val in in Maui at one of the retreats, and of course we were just bawling. And this time I, I picked a more complicated, challenging person, and it was interesting that it was it was more about me seeing myself in them than than you understand like when you're like i know this person has been angry i'm like yeah you angry piece of crap and then i'm like oh just like me like it was more like i i with val it was like oh you precious flower i i love you and when you get you're going to die it's like me and you've experienced pain and we're just crying and weeping with such a i'll never forget it this time was more like Oh right, there's there's parts of me and everybody, even even the people that are challenging, and yeah. uh, confusing and upsetting. So yeah. it's a, it's very powerful. And we brought this up in 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 the context of talking about social justice and injustice. Um, so yeah, it's 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 good to do it with someone who, um, you know, you don't feel that you're totally like because it reminds you it's true for every human person. Yeah. Uh, and you know, um, it can be hard if it's, um, you know, if it's someone you're struggling with, um, but effective, but, um, Sharon Salford gave me a, a tip one time when I was trying to do, um, loving kindness practice for someone who I just, did not feel loving or kind to. And I just <laughs> tried and tried. I just couldn't do it. So she said, and so at the end, when you're wishing well-being for this person, I wish that you'd be happy. Mm. She said, say, in as much as I can, mm. I wish that you'd be happy. Mm. And, you know, and it might be not much at all in the beginning. Right. But it, but something happens if you do that, you know, a number of times. Something starts softening yeah. and breaking up. And uh, so that I've always really appreciated that. And as much as I can, mm. I hope that you are free from mm. that. That's good self-compassion because we certainly don't want to be uh, phony. We want to be patient and gentle with ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's really lovely. Well, I have two final questions for you. Um, they're very simple, very easy. We've sort of done the, the, the meat of it. Um, one is, can you think of something in your life that happened that you can't 
explain like something. This would be where you tell your ghost story. This would be you tell your I left my body story. Uh, You saw your UFO story. Uh, You saw Maharaji walked by when you were in the shower, whatever it is. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, my first response was, what What will I say? But here's one that truly was that. When I first saw Maharaji in India, I had been in these meditation courses. And then a group of us, Ramdas wanted to go find Maharaji. And, but we didn't think we would. We were taking a bus to Delhi. And um, uh, so we were all, you know, driving along. I was actually reading Be Here Now. <laughs> and, uh, but after these months of doing this meditation, I had begun to glimpse that, you know, that I was not who I thought I was. And that there was, that there was so much more. There was so much more possibility uh, to being human in this life. I realized that before that, my my aspirations, my ideas of what a, a, a person could become were so small. And th- I was glimpsing through these practices that, oh, it's much bigger than that. Mm. Um, and then we, as it turned out, we were going through this a town in India, Allahabad, and uh, as we were going along, Ramesh was in the front of the bus, he looked out the window, and there was this whole big myth about you couldn't find Maharaji, it was all going to be here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, there's Maharaji. And the bus came to a screeching halt, and everybody just plowed off the bus. And I was one of the last people off, and uh, as I came down the bus steps, I looked, and I saw him and, you know, I was a very pragmatic kind of person. I was a New Yorker. I was an intellectual. I was very practical. I I worked on the Saturn V. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There he was. And what I saw was the embodiment of these possibilities I had glimpsed just tiny glimpses of them in myself I they had come to life and they were fully formed in this human and I I saw that in the moment that I saw him Mm -hmm. I and I you know it's impossible to really talk about or like make you understand just um what that experience was but um it was amazing. And one thing I always thought, you know, in, in India and in Buddhism and Hinduism, there's a lot of bowing. And um, so, you know, I had just come out of all these, you know, women's liberation and all these different movements. And, you know, so bowing was always a little awkward in the beginning. Um, but I did, I, find, I did learn to bow to the Dharma, you know, to the teachings and to the Buddha, you know, because I so appreciated it. And so I was bowing to that possibility in myself and in others. And when I saw Maharaji, I just like fell down on the ground um, and just in like a full body bow on the ground. Wow. I just, it was so dazzling. 
<laughs> all I could do was just honor it. You know, mm, mm. that's that's a great. Of course, you can't explain it. That's that's no. the purpose for this question. It's funny that you were on a bus because it sounds like you were hit by a bus. It seems like you were <laughs> bow, like bowed over. Literally, you were bowed over by something that you couldn't explain, but that in an instant you experienced in fullness and became. Wow. Wow. That is so cool. (laughs) And such huge happiness attached to that because, Mm. yeah, it's all much bigger and more profound and more wonderful and more loving than Mm. you ever imagined. That's what, uh, again, I got Ram Dass on the mind, but when he took psychedelics and I had a very similar experience my first time taking psychedelics was that feeling of I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. Yeah. Meaning you, you yeah. drop all of the stuff and yeah. you're just there. And like a child or something, you go, oh, how did I forget? And to think that there was a, a, a man, a, a being that was embodying that, that could just, because we can all do it. I mean, hopefully it's happened for people while we've been talking. It's happened for me. You drop back into that place where you go, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. And then Ramdas also said, I, I put this in my book where it was like coming back into the illusion is actually a little bit more painful having been, once you break out of jail, if they catch you and put you back, it's a little bit worse because you remember how clear the night sky was when you broke out. But um, that's the game. That's what we're playing. That's that's what we're doing over and over. So that was lovely. The other the other question is is lighter and easier. I don't think I asked Jack because um, I don't know why. But um, it's just can you think of a time in your life when you laughed really really hard? Maybe when you were younger. Maybe recently. It doesn't have to be a great story. But if you were laughing to the point of tears, do you remember what happened? Who you were with? Is there a great one that comes to mind? Well, I laugh a lot. <laughs> and and, and uh, but first thing that arose was um, our dear friend, Wavy Gravy, who likes to say, if you, um, uh, if you don't have a sense of humor, it just isn't funny. <laughs> I know. I I never met him. Is he still around? Yeah, he is. He is. I never met him. Pretty frail, but he's he is around. Yeah, he was on dying. In in I put this in the book. Um, one of the things he said about dying was, um, uh, he said, "Oh, oh," he said, uh. Don't forget, it was Patrick Henry's second choice. <laughs> That's right. That's For those right. of you who aren't up to date on Patrick Henry, he famously said, give me liberty or give me death. That's right. <laughs> it was his second choice. That is so funny. And for all of us, I've always just taken that quote to be like, for all of us, it's our second choice. Even as I was telling you that like so often, this is going to sound silly, but I saw a squirrel that was dying on my street and it had been bitten by a dog. And I'm just a softy. I, it, it just is, I'm very fragile. I'm seeing, and it's, and it's just breathing that breath. And I was like, I'm just going to be with this squirrel. I know in light of everything that's going on, this, is, this isn't something I was planning on sharing. 
but like it's so hard for us. We want to go with a dying person. I'm going to scoop you up and I'm going to resuscitate you. It's so what you what you and RD is, have introduced to me is like sometimes you just go. It's our second choice, but this the squirrel. There's nothing I can do except, as I was joking with your phone, I'm just going to bear witness to this. This is I'm here with you. This is happening. It was a really sad moment. I think especially because of everything that's been going on, our hearts are more open. But uh, I don't know why that came to mind. It just did. <laughs> it's heavy stuff. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Do you feel good? I feel great. <laughs> good. No, I do. It's just that the thing is, I think that, you know, this these times are so difficult and but being able to share them and talk them through and remember, you know, what's important. That's mm-hmm. what we can give each other. And, yeah. you know, it's so great. What, one of the great sadnesses of this time, I think of people who are dying alone in those, uh, you know, in nursing homes and hospitals and their loved ones can't be with them. That's right. There is a way, of course, around us reminds us that, you die alone, no matter who's in the room. But, but still, there's you know no loving care, no loving rock, as he said at the uh, at the end. It's that's just so um, heartbreaking, and it's just a reminder that we're really important to each other. That's right. It's important to talk these things out with each other and laugh with each other. That's that's exactly right. That's what it was, was having, I wasn't, I didn't stay with the squirrel long enough. I was walking the baby, so I left it. And then it was just haunting me. Obviously, Val and I talked about it later. I was like, it's one of those things where there are so many people dying that can't be visited. There are so many people being murdered. Um, I was like, it's one of those times where life is so obvious, it almost seems like a bad movie. Then I'm on a walk and I see a squirrel dying and it's like haunting me that I wasn't, able to stay with it or do anything for it. I was like, yeah, Pete, that's what's in your heart right now. You're mourning, you're in agony, you're angry. And like, you think it's about the squirrel. This is what all therapy and all good spiritual work tells us. It's not the squirrel, baby. It's the whole predicament. And anything that can get us talking and ideally laughing and sharing and loving, uh, even if they're horrible things, if they can bring us back to that, um, then that's, that's a little bit a little bit of light in there. Yeah. And I do want to underscore that laughter has been so important during this time. Humor, even if you can't bring yourself to laugh, but music can. But I I just, you know, fun, like not very good cartoons, you know, Mm -hmm. even Colbert trying from his home to be somewhat funny, you know, um, it's so important. I, you know, it does take you out of being so attached to your stuff. Oh, for sure. Thank you. No. <laughs> I, I honor humor. I'm, I honor it too. I don't know if, if you're on the Lama Suryadas text chain. He's always texting yeah. those cartoons. Um, and I'm like, it's so funny. Some of the wisest people I know are the people that are trying to keep some of that, even if it's corny, some humor. Yeah. Going. Yeah. Uh, which is what Wavy Gravy, I believe that was a big part of his role in all of that serious oh, work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing this light with us today and this love with us today, Mirabai. It's, it's mm-hmm. good to see you. I wish, it's funny, 
you told that story about being with Maharaji. I, I heard you say this in another interview um, in a rose garden and all these hippies and there's Maharaji and you're all feeling love. And as a Catholic girl, you were like, this is heaven. Oh, For me, what I, and that's true. That is what they told us. Heaven would be yeah. praising, <laughs> praising God in a, in a beautiful place it's together. My dress. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I'm like, when I, what I miss in this time, I think of seeing you at that restaurant at, at the um, resort where the retreat is and sitting down and just talking to whoever was at the table, knowing that we all had like a shared goal of being aware and being loving and being kind. It's, that was a little slice of heaven. And that's, that's what I miss. It's really yeah, I feel so lucky that I've been able to do fancy things, but I've also done simple things that are free and available to everybody if you can find like-minded people. And it's the second one that is the most special. So I've been missing you and missing those times. And mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to when we can do it again. But um, right now, I'm glad that I'm talking to you and I'm glad that we got to record this. Yes, me so, too. So thank, thank you. you. And thanks to all of you who are listening. That's another, we wouldn't be talking to each other like this if you weren't out there. That's maybe right. we'd be saying other things maybe, but, yeah. but it, you know, there's something very different happens when you're, when there's a circle surrounding you of people who want to be part of this conversation. So that's right. love to all of you. That's right. Thank you, Mirabai. Would you say keep it crispy? We have the guests say keep it crispy. And that's how we are. Crispy. <laughs> the woman that uh, edited the schematics for the hydrogen oxygen balance at Cape Canaveral, who then went on to be a, a flower child and met the, maybe the greatest saint in, in recent history, says, Keep it crispy. Thank you very much. <laughs> My ice game make you haters wanna keep